0: Welcome to Life on Planet Earth with John Aidan Byrne.
1: One of the the things that we talk about um, in the world of Judaism is a concept called tikkun olam, which means healing the world. And something that I always like to talk about with friends that aren't Jewish is that that concept does not mean healing the Jewish world. It means healing the world. And we are all in this together. You know, we are all humans, and so we all care for each other.
2: You've just been listening to Simone Canego, my guest, coming up. She is the author of the best-selling book, The Extraordinary Unordinary You, which tells the journey of her adopting three of her six children, her climb up Mount Kilimanjaro. Simone was co-chair of the Jewish Federation of North America's National Young Leadership Cabinet. So we'll talk about how it all fits together from her faith to her many accomplishments and how people of faith in the jewish and christian and other communities are getting along it's up front and deeply personal
0: a voyage of discovery in an uncommon age of unparalleled scientific economic political and social upheaval life on planet earth searches for the unvarnished truth answers solutions and above all hope for our existential crisis.
2: Simone Canego's best-selling book is called The Extraordinary Ordinary You. It details her journey up Mount Kilimanjaro and other stories about her, well, extraordinary life. I'm your host, John Aiden Byrne. Sherlock, it's grand to have you back. My guest is Simone Canoge. She is a serial entrepreneur, which means she creates a lot of businesses. She is also the author of a new best-selling book, The Extraordinary Unordinary You, in which she details her journey of adopting three of her six children, her climb up Mount Kilimanjaro, and all of the funny, scary, and inspiring stories that came along the way. Welcome to the show. Tell us about yourself.
1: Chris, thank you so much for having me here today. I am a mom of six. Uh... And like you said, I adopted our our three youngest. I've been married for 27 years to my husband. I feel like that's a big accomplishment right there. Um, He's a great guy, but just 27 years is a long period of time. Um, (laughs) And yeah, I've started several businesses. I've worked in different fields. I feel like I jump in and I learn something, um, which I love, but I think I've finally found um, my purpose, which is storytelling. I love to tell stories about my life. I'm hoping that I inspire um, people as I go. And, you know, again, my goal is if if I can impact one person, then I've done my job. I just published... My book, The Extraordinary Unordinary You in October, and uh, so far, so good. It's been, it's been a, my life has been an amazing journey, and I'm, I'm so thankful for all of these moments in time that have come my way.
2: Yeah, well, you pack a lot into the book, and I don't know where to begin or end on it, but you, let's take your climb up Mount Kilimanjaro, that itself deserves its own book, certainly <laughs> a fat chapter in it. What was that about?
1: Yeah, that was um. So that was actually six years ago. Um, just just like two days ago, it was the six year anniversary. Um, I decided I had we had a friend that did it the year before, and he asked my husband if he was interested in doing it. My story goes, he counted to three and said, "No, thank you." Call Simone, and uh, he he doesn't agree with my story, of course. Um, but. You know, he he wasn't interested in doing it and and I was. I mean, they called me and I said, I'm in. I've never done a challenge like this before, but I'm really big on challenges. And this was a challenge built in with philanthropy. We were raising money for the Live Strong Foundation. And I, you know, I I loved it. It was I traveled with 16 perfect strangers. Uh, obviously we became a strong team of very good friends. Um, So really climbing a mountain with people that you don't know, learning leadership at at the same time as learning how to climb a mountain um, had its unique challenges, but it was probably one of the best things I've done in my life and one of the most interesting and one of the most positive. Um, It just was really uh, challenged me mentally, physically, and really brought a whole new appreciation to teamwork and and just people's stories. Um, it really was such an amazing journey.
2: Now, Kilimanjaro, that's in Tanzania, right? And it's the highest single-standing mountain in the world. How high is it?
1: Well, it's the highest peak in Africa. It's um, 19,341 feet. Um, and, you know, the nice thing about Kilimanjaro is that it is truly a hike versus a technical climb and that's why you see lots of people attempting it because, um, you know, you don't need, especially the route that we did the, um, gear that, you know, you don't need crampons. You're not using an ice pick. Um, you're truly hiking up a mountain and going through all the different climate zones, which is very unique to this mountain as well. Um, yeah, so it's, it's beautiful. I mean, you go from the, you know, the rainforest zone all the way up, uh to the glacial zone which you know obviously you're changing layers as you go um Mm -hmm. but but very beautiful
2: how long did it take
1: it was five days up two days down um and we took the ronge route which is a um it's the longest i believe it's the longest route um it gives you really the time to um acclimate to acclimatize it really you know it, it you're talking to a girl from Florida. (laughs) We live, we live at sea level. So, um, I, I was, I I love the fact that we took the extra time to really make sure that our bodies were ready for this, this journey, which, you know, again, we, there were 16 of us and we were all successful. We all made it to the top together, which is, is truly an accomplishment.
2: I'm trying to imagine this. You camp along the way at night, then you share food in the evening any little dangerous sections of it?
1: Yes, we camped along, you know, each night there was, um, we had porters that carried the tents and the food tents. To me, that was such a fun experience to see what people are capable of cooking at elevations like that. They, you know, you get there, they have popcorn and, and water ready for you. Obviously they're taking the water out of the, um, the streams and, um, treating it with iodine. Um, and then, you know, they're cooking full meals, um, Probably better than I cook in my my wow. full full blown kitchen. <laughs> so
2: five, five, five star climbing Mount Kilimanjaro. I like that.
1: I think um, most of these, you know, most of these trips. I mean, that's they they really um, they offer you. Food. I guess you got to eat to be able to climb. Yeah, so you know, yeah,
2: right. you need a lot of carbohydrates. Uh, yeah, sure.
1: a bar is not going to get you very far. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, and then we um, so you're – you know, sleeping in the camps, and then you're uh, hiking during the day. Um, based on that route, it's like a total of forty four miles. Although I think we went a bit longer because we started from outside of the national park. Um, and it's a it's it's a long, challenging, beautiful experience.
2: <laughs> yeah, I can imagine the natural beauty alone just opens your eyes. Now, this was a few years ago. Were you able to take your mobiles with you? Any? social media?
1: Yeah. So it's interesting. I um, I took a lot of pictures, obviously, and there were certain areas that we would have cell service and um, I could call home or get, usually the photos wouldn't go over um, text, but I was able to um, call home and, and talk with my children. Um, I think the coolest thing was that when we got to the, the first peak, the first summit, the um, because there's three summits as you're climbing Kilimanjaro, I was actually, I went, I took out my phone to take a photo of the sunrise, and I had cell service. So I was able to call my family, and they were all cheering. So it was really amazing how technology works. So um, very, very fun moment at, at the first summit.
2: Well, your family must have been proud of you. Who was taking care of your kids at that stage?
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, my my husband was. He oh. was he was all in for it. He was he was here, and uh, you know, obviously my my mom helped um, as well because my husband worked. So um, we needed uh, definitely people to to jump in on that one. Uh, but he did a good job. Everybody, you know, survived me being gone, and were much better for it. <laughs>
2: Okay, so just what time of the year was this?
1: Uh, This was in um, the end of January, beginning of February of 2015. So anybody
2: listening, are they good months to go because of climate?
1: Yeah, that's, I think that's probably the prime time. Um, I know they have an extended climbing season, but I think there's also a rainy season where it makes it more complicated. So, but that was, it was it was the perfect time for us. We really didn't encounter any kind of bad weather, which was amazing. And my friend who climbed it the year before, uh, they had rain, they had snow, and that obviously that adds another level of difficulty to the actual climb.
2: Now you climbed with a large group, of strangers. Did you come together as a community, or any moments of tension?
1: We really came together as a community. I mean, it was really an amazing group of people. Again, we were all raising money for, you know, the Livestrong Foundation. So there were people that were cancer survivors and climbing in honor of someone who had passed from cancer or in honor of someone who was, you know, in the middle of treatment for cancer. So we kind of all had the same, the same goal. and and sure, there's always moments of tension, especially in a situation like that. But nothing that totally, you know, nothing that really affected mm-hmm. any of the climb. I mean, people are tired, right? You you know, you can you know, there were moments where we, um, for example, there was a day where I was really tired, and so some of the teammates took some of the the weight from my pack to um, lighten my burden. Um, so everybody really worked together so well as a team and, you know, sleeping in a tent at night and, you know, trying to get enough sleep that you feel like you're ready to move on the next day is definitely adds, adds an extra, extra piece to it. And then we're also taking, um, anti-malarial meds and they give you very vivid dreams. And so one night, one of the guys screamed out in the middle of the night, I can't find my purse. And so, <laughs> and his wife said, said, Seriously, you can't find your purse. So, of course, the whole camp was awake laughing to this whole situation. Um, but, you know, like it, it just honestly, it was life changing. And um, it was such a positive group that I, you know, wow. definitely amazing.
2: I must ask some of my family members if they might do something. Do you need to be accomplished? Do you need to be a, yeah. a mountain climber? Do you need experience to take on this challenge?
1: No. Um, oh. You need to train for it. Um, you know, I trained for about six months. Probably other people trained for much longer. Um, but... I had never climbed a mountain before. That was my first experience with, with that. And because it's not a technical climb, that's why you see a lot more people, um, attempting it. You just have to be prepared for, um, you know, building lung capacity so that you can, um, and, and being patient. And then also, obviously, when you get to the high elevations, you know, you're, You're working on very low oxygen levels. So you're hoping that your body's going to adjust to that, you know, that change and be able to, you know, let you move forward at that high elevation. But I would say I don't know if anybody uh, other than our guides um, had climbed anything before this. So,
2: well, I can't claim to have climbed Mount Kilimanjaro, but you've got me intrigued about Mount Kilimanjaro. I want to talk about the rest of your accomplishments and your life. In 2018, you were selected as co-chair of the Jewish Federations of North America's National Young Leadership Cabinet. So you co-chaired that group. Uh, Tell us about your role.
1: Um, Yeah. So that was um, a big honor. So, um, it's, we were in, in charge of a group of young leaders from all over uh, the United States and Canada um, that, you know, are, it, it's really exposing this group, 30 to 40 year olds um, to leadership within the Jewish community. Um around the world. We took mission trips each year to see um, what the federation, the Jewish federation was doing in different countries. Um, and it, it was a, it was a great learning experience for me of, you know, leadership. Okay. Leadership on Kilimanjaro is one thing. Leadership in life is one thing. Leadership within philanthropists is a, is a different, is another different story. Um, but really, Again, people that just want to make the world a better place. So, and again, we talk about one of the the things that we talk about um, in the um, world of Judaism is a concept called Tikkun Olam, which means healing the world. And something that I always um, like to talk about with friends that aren't Jewish is that 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 concept does not mean. Healing the Jewish world it means healing the world, and we are all in this together. You know, we are all humans, and so we all care for each other. Um, but that role was, again, another one of those life changing pieces because I had the opportunity to um, interact with people from all over the world and be exposed to um, opportunities in terms of seeing what's happening in different countries that I wouldn't have seen in any any other realm.
2: Wow. Well, well, you mentioned. Healing and coming together—we certainly need it in today's world.
1: This is a very tough time for for all of us, right? Like, and as as humans, you know, looking at each other, saying that we we all matter, we are all important, we all need to take care of each other. Um, you know, and that's really what I love talking about is that you know we um, sometimes I think we're too hard on ourselves, we're too hard on each other, and I just. I think we, we, we need a bit more kindness as we interact with each other and, and respect, which is, um, again, my, my goal in life is to really raise these six humans to be kind and caring and, and make an impact on the world that's a positive impact.
2: Well, the Jewish Federation, just want to stay on that for a few moments. Absolutely. Um, so, sounds like a very influential group. And doing a lot of good work, and it's important to have those kind of groups. Maybe you call them lobbies. How do you see the state of uh, Jewish relations uh, with other communities, secular and faith communities, in the U.S. and around the world?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that again, you know, i th- I think that the the Jewish Federation is really focused on. Um, Really making the world a better place, so they do um, a lot of work. Like my local federation is is not just about our Jewish community. We have a lot of events with, um, you know, some of the the, the churches in town. Um, you know, I think we we just try to work together. And so, how is their relationship? I think it depends on the person as well. I mean, mm. you know, I'm a big believer in that. You know, everybody matters. Everybody's voice matters. I can't say that is for everyone. I can say it is true for the Jewish Federation as a whole. That's how, you know, they they go through um, the interactions that they have with with the world. Is that, um, you know, that the world matters? And yes, obviously, it's the Jewish Federation. So the first piece um, is Jewish, um, but in general, I feel like um, you know we a- interact at a, a secular level at a with other religious groups, and you know, there's. It's the working on acceptance. One of the things that the Jewish Federation just created is um, they have now a person in the national office that is focused on uh, racial equity and really making sure that um, we are appropriately representing, you know, the the demographics of our world, and so. Um, Which I think is a very huge step forward, especially now um, that it's been, you know, I've had the opportunity to be on some of the calls and and be able to speak at a couple of events, having a multicultural family. Um, And I think it's just a really positive move forward
0: to protect her home and family in a disaster. Karen was willing to wade through water, mud and insurance paperwork. Yeah, I can do this. You go, Karen. By simply understanding and updating what her insurance covers and doesn't cover now, she'll be better prepared no matter when disaster strikes. Learn other simple ways to protect your home and family before a natural disaster at ready.gov. That's ready.gov. A message from FEMA and the Ad Council.
2: My guest is Simone Kniegel, author of the best-selling book, The Extraordinary Unordinary You. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. Well, certainly interfaith dialogue and harmony and love and so on and respect for each other's different faiths or non-faiths is so important today and historically because we know the Jewish community has suffered great pain through history like other communities. And so we need to move forward positively. I want to read something that got my attention earlier. I'm a practising... Roman Catholic, I'm very happy to be a practicing Roman Catholic. You're not. I'm not switching over, Simone. I do respect your, your, your religious faith deeply. And it's important that we have these dialogues. But I want to read this. It, it, it was very sweet. During his historic visit to the great synagogue of Rome, the late Pope St. John Paul said the Jewish religion is not extrinsic to us but in a certain way is intrinsic to our own religion, with Judaism, therefore, we have a relationship, which we do not have with any other religion. You are our dearly beloved brothers. And in a certain way, it could be said that you are our elder brothers. I think it's so true.
1: Yeah, I I actually had read that um as well and um you know, I think it's a really a, a very po- powerful statement. Um I once had a friend ask me um that you know, it, it was this and if you're okay with me having this this conversation, yes, yes. um had a friend ask me um about our uh, as within the Jewish religion about, um, a belief in Jesus, um, as our savior. And I Mm -hmm. said, well, that's not what Jewish people believe. And so instantly she said, well, then you can't go to heaven if you don't believe that. And, um, I said, well, again, that is maybe what your belief is, but in our religion, you know, we don't, we don't look at it like that and so she actually said well let me let me get back to you on that cuz she was very much in love with my first child and she said um you know he was 2 2 years old at the time and and so i said um you do understand that means jacob isn't going to heaven as well and so She said, okay, I need to think about this. Let me, let me go, uh, let me go talk to my pastor. And so she came back to me the next day and she said, well, what he said to me is that as long as you're living a good and moral life, you'll be just fine. And so, you know, I thought like, again, opening people's eyes to the fact that there's differences out there and just because I believe differently than you. I respect you, right? Like that's that's the biggest thing for me is that respect. Once so you you can agree to disagree. That's totally fine. But respect the person for exactly you know where they are, and you know again, it's okay to not believe the same thing. I think that's so important to remind ourselves.
2: Yeah, it's about having an informed conscience and. Uh- That was an interesting encounter you had with your friend. What what is community life like in the Jewish faith communities? Because in the Roman Catholic world or the Catholic world, because there's Orthodox Catholics as well, but we're pretty much pretty closely aligned. There's a sort of, a among some people, Annie, a kind of a standing joke that in America, at least, we have a lot of Russian Catholics and what that means is that we're rushing to church on Sunday, mm-hmm. rushing out mm-hmm. to the parking lot, and going to the ball game. You know, <laughs> it's it's sort of tied in with sort of the secular world and the the frenzied pace of life in America, where we really don't have a lot of family time and downtime to do existential things, if you will.
1: Yeah. So that's. I haven't heard that before, but, but that's a, a good, that's a fun analogy. Um, so I, um, you know, again, the, a- across the board. So, right. We have, you know, Jews that are secular Jews that are reformed Jews that are conservative and Jews that are Orthodox within each group, um, how things work are completely different. We are conservative, but we are probably more to the reform side in terms of how we, um, our, how we practice. But we, um, you know, our family is our biggest thing. And that's kind of how our community works. I mean, we're really, we're, we're focused on um, spending time with our family, especially now we get more time than we ever imagined. Um, but also, um, family and education are the two, I would say the two most important things, at least within my world of Judaism. Um, and I think, and, and really, you know, seeing the entire world. You know what I try to teach my children um, is really that um, again to look at the world. You know, with an with an open mind and a lens to see how much you can learn from someone else. Um, I would imagine people do the same thing in every every religion. You rush to get here. You rush to get there. My my sister lives in Switzerland, and she she, she has a completely different pace than she did when she was in the States. And I can tell you, I'm, I'm jealous of that pace on certain days. So she, I don't want to say jealous, but like intrigued by it. So we went to visit her and we went to a movie and, um, they have intermissions during the middle of the movie. And I'm thinking this could never happen <laughs> in the United mm. States because we're rushing to get everywhere. Like you have to finish yeah. what you're doing to get onto the next thing. Um, and she was like, "No, you have an intermission. You go get coffee. You go like have a conversation, and then you come back in 15 minutes." I was like, "Seriously? <laughs> it, w- it wouldn't it wouldn't fly here." Um, but but I do agree that we do rush too much to get to. We have so many activities and so many things going on that I think sometimes we miss the the moments. And this year, what I have experienced is. You know, it's been very tough, but we've had this amazing pause. And that's what I'll, I'll call it for our family. We really got to spend more time together, especially because of our older children. They, you know, they had to come home from university. So, um, time that I wouldn't have had with them and time to have dinner conversations that sometimes we can't sit down as a family for dinner because they have sports activities at night or, you know, so, um, you know, but. But looking at the – the, I think it's hard to look at just the entire Jewish community because um, depending on how you practice, it's different. Depending on what your family does, it's different. Um, what's interesting also about the, the Jewish community is there's definitely things that are universal. So um, the high holidays, whether you're um, – when, whether you go to synagogue every week or not, on the high holidays, you go to synagogue. Like this is, you know, it's, it's interesting because the, the synagogue will go from having, you know, maybe, I don't know, 30 or 40 people there on a regular basis during the week and hundreds of people there for the high holidays. Um, so, yeah. So I, sort- I that, sort of, that
2: sort of reminds me too of, we have some of that uh, color, if you will, in the Catholic church, everybody shows up at Christmas and Easter, and less so during the rest of the year. That's just the way it is. Because if you look at the overall picture of faith in America, there's been a great decline in some areas, although there's been a great rise, interestingly enough, in a lot of conservative groups, probably in the Jewish community as much as in the Catholic faith. We have a, another phrase in the uh, Catholic church, it's called cafeteria Catholics. And while we're one, church, uh, one universal church, there are some Catholics who will have polar opposite views on a lot of issues of fundamental importance, like life issues, pro-life, pro-choice, family issues. So I kind of sort of identify somewhat with what's going on then in the Jewish communities. Not everybody in the Jewish community is a conservative, right?
1: Oh no, not not at all. I mean, so if we if what you were saying about the the decline in in terms of people who are practicing on a regular basis, what what you've seen in the Jewish community is that so basically reform is um I don't want to say the least religious because that's not what it means, but basically there's reform, conservative and then orthodox. Orthodox is they are praying Constantly, they are they're in synagogue all of the time. Like there's there's so many pieces to the Orthodox religion. What you've seen in the United States is a decline in the middle piece, the conservative piece. So you've seen a, a decline in the conservatives, um, more um, a growth in reform and growth in the Orthodox. Um, so so the people who were kind of on the edge are finding their place in a more religious um, part of the Jewish religion, which again, I think is, is a really interesting, um, thing, especially during this, this time.
2: Absolutely. Where do you fit in all of this?
1: So I would say that we are, we are conservative, but we are more towards the reform side of conservative. See, there's all these different pieces that you yeah. never, you, you know, <laughs> um, but we, you know, the, so belonging to a conservative synagogue, um, majority of the services are in Hebrew. Um, and if you're in a reform synagogue, and again, this is, again, I'm giving like an overarching view of it. It's not, it, it. it. Definitely can be different depending on where you are, but in a Reform synagogue, majority of the service is in English. They use music. They, you know, during it, most conservative synagogues um, don't have music during the service, um, like no guitars or anything out. Um, And Orthodox, you are the um, synagogue is actually split between men and women, so you don't sit with each other. Um, Even if you're married, you sit. The men sit with the men. The women sit with the women. Um, yeah.
2: Wow, that's interesting. That used to be the way it was back in the day in the Catholic Church. Women more traditionally wore veils. They some still do. And I remember from childhood there was a tendency for the women to sit on one side of the church and the men on the other. But all of that has changed. I listened to an interview you gave a couple of years ago. You used the word community, which I'd like to go back to about how your husband became Jewish, he wasn't Jewish originally, after going on some vacation, journey, trip, expedition. He was he was uplifted, I guess, by the love, the feeling of community that was extended to him by this, I guess, predominantly Jewish group. It struck me that that's probably the way back to growing religious communities on all sides in America. You have to build communities. You can build a Catholic church and people can go on Sunday, but Unless there's intrinsic, strong, loving communities where people share and do things with each other in an authentic way, these communities won't be sustained as well.
1: Absolutely. Uh, So we went actually, I believe it was 2011, we went on a um, a mission trip and a mission trip within the Jewish Federation is more of like a fact-finding trip it's a it's seeing what's happening in the world so we went to um, we went to Israel um, friends of ours were leading the trip we had already been married for 20 years and when we got married there was never a discussion of one of us converting it was again we um, we, we respected each other for exactly where we were. Rob was not a religious person. Um, and the only discussion we had was that, you know, okay, how do we want to raise our children? Obviously an important discussion to have. And the decision was that we would raise the children Jewish. And so we decided to go on this trip. He, he was nervous about going on it because it was a Jewish trip. And he was like, I'm not going to tell anybody I'm not Jewish. I'm like, that's fine, just be you like nobody is going to nobody's going to judge you. Um, and we really did we had the most amazing time on this trip. we met people that we never would have met um, had experiences that we never would have experienced and really felt he for him it was the first time he felt like he was part of a community. What's really interesting about um, my interactions within the Jewish Federation is that you walk into a room, I, I, I joke about like my journey on cabinet, um, national young leadership is that it's like walking into a room like you were a kid again, where everybody wants to be your friend. You sit down at the table and people ask you about your life and you have an authentic conversation. It's unlike any community I have been part of in my life. It really is people care exactly where you're at. They are interested in you. Um, and you're always included. And so we went on this trip and that's how he felt for the first time. Um, he felt comfortable and he really, again, amazing people who were just interested in who he was for who he was and not trying to change him into something else. And that was a first for him. And so we sat down at the end of the trip and had a conversation about um like what was the most powerful moment for us, for us of of this trip and you know he said to everyone that he you know he said i was embarrassed to say this at the beginning um cuz i didn't know if i would be judged uh but um i'm not jewish um and that this is the first time that i felt like i was re- truly part of a community and accepted for who i am and now i feel comfortable saying all of this to you guys. And, um, and he said, and I really fell in love with, you know, my connection to, to this, this community. And when I go home, I want to start my conversion process. And he did. I mean, he didn't tell me he was going to say that. So that was pretty shocking again, after 20 years of marriage. And so wow. we, we got home and he, uh, he worked with the rabbi for a year and um, he converted. So, you know, what's really interesting is when you convert, you, you learn so much more than like, for me, like he would ask me questions. I'm like, I don't know the answer to that. (laughs) I was like, you, like I'm Jewish because I'm Jewish, you know, right? Like this is how I grew up. I, I don't, I haven't studied all of the things that you're studying. So he knows so much more than me, which is great because now as a unified front, he can bring this into any holidays that we're talking about with the kids. And, um, but yeah, he so he finished his um, part of um, going into manhood or womanhood within the Jewish religion. As you have a bar or bat mitzvah, and our daughter's bat mitzvah was coming up, and they do something called an aliyah, which is you um, do a blessing before you read from the the Torah. And so, when when you do that, you become a bar, bat mitzvah. And so he went on to the bima, which is the stage in the front of the synagogue to do an aliyah for um, our daughter. And so when he did that, he also became a bar mitzvah at, his, at, at, at her bat mitzvah, which was a really special, special moment.
2: So he converted from, what had he any religion before that?
1: Yeah, he was Presbyterian. Um, I don't think that they, his parents actually are from Croatia. And I believe they grew up in Catholicism. Um, but I don't remember exactly. Um, and so, you know, when they came to the United States, they found their community within their, you know, they have a, had a whole Croatian community, but he was never one that went to, um, other than on Christmas going to church and stuff like that. So
2: it sounds like you have a really close knit and very happy family life in fact you have a multicultural family you adopted three of your kids
1: yeah we uh so yes we have a very close family we have um chaos every day um and that's Beautiful. exactly how we like it
2: <laughs> chaos eliminates loneliness oh.
1: Yeah. I actually, it's, it's funny. We had, um, one summer where we only had one child home. Everybody else was away at summer camp or a high school program. And so one of the siblings called home to talk to Millie and they said, um, how does it feel as the only child? And she's like, I'm not the only child. I'm the lonely child. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I love that.
1: Yeah. Um, but yeah, we, um, you know, we're very fortunate. We have, uh, so our kids range in age from 13 to 24. Um, our oldest three, 24, almost 21, and 18 are um, biologic. And then our 16-year-old and our 13-year-old are from Ethiopia. And our 14-year-old is from South Korea. So, yeah. So we have, um, we, we have a good time.
2: <laughs> well, it's all, I love these adoption stories. What I understand is that adoption is so vital in American life, but there are a lot of obstacles, legal obstacles, and there are so many little children and babies out there who need homes uh, and they need uh, adoptive parents. And it's not always that easy to get through all the loopholes and bureaucracy.
1: Yeah, I think that, um, you know, there are, you know, I, I have no idea of the number of orphans in the world. I know it's substantial, and you know, we um, when we decided to go through this process, it was a discussion with the entire family of how we're going to do this. Um, and yes, there are things have changed um, dramatically since when we adopted. A lot of these countries are no longer open for international adoption. Um, again, the. Uh, you know, the processes are 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 complex and identifying any um relatives that might still be alive are complex, especially in a place like Ethiopia, where um in a lot of the rural villages they're not actual birth records. So it's very hard to kind of go back and, and trace who family members are. Um, you know, yes, there's a lot of paperwork involved. Um there's a lot of a lot of waiting. Um, and We did it three times because there are so many amazing kids in the world that just need a family to love them, and we truly believed we could be that family. We are that family. I was looking the other day through the stacks of paper I was cleaning out my office, and you know we're talking thousands of pieces of paper that we submitted um, to get all these get through all these processes. Um, But you know. I'll save them. It's a good, it's a good memento.
2: <laughs> yeah, right. Well, God bless all your work. It's great. The Extraordinary Unordinary You is the name of your book. Why did you decide to write this?
1: You know, I think that um, it's really, I, f- I feel that it's really important to share our stories. Um, I love talking to people. My kids laugh at me. It doesn't matter where I sit down. I strike up, strike up a conversation with a stranger. Um, and, you know, I had a moment where I thought that I have people tell me all of the time and that, oh, you should write a book. You have all these great stories. It's so inspiring. And I thought to myself, okay, I'm just an ordinary girl. Like, this is not, you know, I'm not a writer. Um, but then it kind of came to me that, you know, we, we are all Extraordinary in our own way, we are all unordinary, and I feel it's really important to inspire people to kind of take a look at themselves and and really believe in themselves, realize what they're capable of. So, if my stories can inspire one person, then I've done my job. So, you know, I talk about our adoptions, I talk about you know the ups, the downs, the our 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 whole life. You know, Kilimanjaro. um, You know, my daughter was diagnosed with Crohn's a year and a half ago. That that kind of piece of you know so not just the shiny moments i think it's really important that when we when we have conversations that we uh talk about our struggles as well because that makes us who we are and it also makes people realize that they are not alone in in what they're going through
2: you have said change the way you see yourself and the world around you will change what did you mean by this
1: so i i think so many um motivational books or inspirational books will tell you, here are the three steps to change yourself, to do this, to do better at this, or to do better at that. And I truly believe that we all have it in us, but we just don't believe in ourselves sometimes. And so I think that it's really important to take a look at ourselves and say, you are capable of this. You can do this. You will do this. Um, instead of saying, well, why don't you change yourself? And then maybe you could be able to do this. I feel like you just need to change the way you see yourself.
2: How are you getting through COVID-19? What are the shutdowns like in Florida? How is Hmm. that playing out?
1: So Florida is a very unique place in that we were only shut down for a very short period of time. So things pretty much are open here. Um, That being said, we don't really go very many places because um, we still, my husband is a physician and we are, and having a daughter that is immunosuppressed um, really kind of makes us take a a step back. Um, And when we do, we wear masks everywhere we go. It is not a mandate here, which is also an interesting piece about Florida. Um,
2: So you can walk into a store in Florida, you don't have to wear a
0: mask.
1: You know, there'll be a sign on the door that says, please wear a mask, but, but many people do not. And it is not it's not enforceable. It's a free world. But you know what, let's, uh, let's, let's, let's take care of each other. And if there's a chance you can help someone by wearing a mask, then you know, I I, I don't want to get into the politics of it. But I just feel like, you know, um, there's so many people suffering right now. Let's respect each other.
2: Yeah, no, I, I go along with that. We have to be sensible. COVID is real, people have died, people have got sick, wearing a mask is a sensible precaution. Um, I guess then the debate becomes if the mandates become too extreme and totally unnecessary to our way of life. Let's be intelligent about how we approach COVID. Uh, Simone, uh, life is good for you, for your family. Uh, you have a great book. And this has been a great pleasure. And thank you for coming on my podcast. Best of luck.
1: Thank you so much. And thank you for having me on the show today. I really appreciate it.
0: You've been listening to Life on Planet Earth with John Aiden Byrne. To reach the host or learn about advertising or sponsorship opportunities, call 973 664 9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com. That's 973 664 9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com. 973 664 9460 in the U.S or email desk at gmail.com.